Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you will hear part two of my conversation with David Hubert, Associate Provost for Learning Advancement at Salt Lake Community College. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. So let me ask you a question that I was actually recently, um, I went to the ABLE, recent ABLE conference in July and in um, one of the sessions that I attended, we talked a little bit about the um, one of the issues that we sometimes see, and that is the sustainability of programs. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, there's the, let's call it the sort of year-to-year, day-to-day practical sustainability, which is just how do you not get burned out and how do you get enough resources to go into what kind of resource do you need and you know and 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 so on but i have noticed a slightly different kind of problem in sustainability and a lot of institutions i want to take get your take on it because you've you you are one of the rare schools that really have that you know sort of you know long view on this when you see let's take laguardia community college right which whom we both know pretty well, and Brad Einan, you know, was yeah. really such a pioneer in that, and and got portfolio started there and made a very successful program. A few years ago, he retired, and after he retired, in his case, um, he had built up such an amazing staff that you know multiple people were able to get on and continue the, his legacy. And Pablo Avia is, yeah. is doing an amazing job at LaGuardia, and I would argue probably taking it to the next level, you know. And that's an amazing way to think about a, a program like that. The sustainability, you know, there's that year to year, how do we get the funding and the budget, et cetera. But there's also the how do you survive when the key people leave? Um, and that you know, still for me in a lot of institutions, I see a lot of that. So the linchpin being, you know, removed and then, and then a, a program can fall apart and collapse. Yeah. How do you see that? Well, I think that's a huge challenge and, and a kind of a warning to lots of institutions. Um, a couple of things that I think about one is, 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 really trying to make sure that whatever initiative that you're doing, in this case, we might be talking about ePortfolio, but you know, it could be any number of initiatives. You're really not just trying to get something approved. You're trying to, you're trying to affect the culture of the institution, because if you can change the culture, that is the, the processes that the, that the institution uses, the language that it uses, the, the thinking that goes around a certain area is oriented toward, in this case, ePortfolio, um, then if people leave, uh, it's much more likely to be robust and stay because mm-hmm. you've changed the culture. So that's that's one thing. Another thing is, of course, the people that you hire. And I've been in my position long enough that I have all the folks who work for me, I have hired now. Mm-hmm. And I'm just so blessed to have 
fantastic people working mm-hmm. for me. And then the other thing is synergy. So when you start an initiative in higher ed, it's very tempting to just focus your efforts on it alone. But sometimes you have to stop and think about how it fits with other things. So we're not just doing an e-portfolio initiative here. It's tied to general education and it's tied to assessment and it's tied to faculty rank and tenure and it's tied to our uh, study abroad program, right? So now all of our study abroad programs document what they're doing in e-portfolio. So that's that idea of of synergistically connecting an initiative to other existing initiatives at the institution. Because then if if I retire, it's already so well ensconced in the culture of the institution that any one of a number of people could pick it up and and continue it and, you know, Lord, probably improve it uh, after I'm gone. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to mention, and just kind of a lesson I learned from my boss, Provost uh, Clifton Sanders, um, you know, he's always taking the line of, I want all the people who report to me to be able to step in and do my job hmm. uh, if I leave. And so I make sure that all the people who work for me know exactly what I'm doing uh, and why I'm doing it so that they can, if they wanted to, uh, and I left, they could step into my job and continue mm-hmm. uh, and expand their career. But they 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 know the not just the what we're doing, but why we're doing it yeah. and where it connects. That whole synergistic process. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of a long winded answer, but that's, that's no, it's a, it's 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 beautiful because I I I think that that's I mean it's path that one has to know when they're taking on. That's kind of what it looks like, you know, because initially it might be that you are using your charisma or maybe your know-how or maybe your, you know, just passion in whatever it is that the initiative demands for you to do. And you happen to maybe have some, you know, good faculty development skills, or maybe you have good relationships with people and you open some doors and able to get things started. But really, you know, the, the success of, of something that that can last in an institutional setting need to sort of outgrow your own charisma. It needs to go into sort of the culture and, and I think that needs to weave itself into the fabric of how things work. Yeah. And the other, the other thing is that we have an amazing faculty here at Salt Lake Mm -hmm. Community College and it's not a stretch to ask them to engage in high impact practices because they're so Mm -hmm. committed to student success. Right. The problem is, and this is, I think, a problem, especially for community colleges across the country, is our teaching loads are just brutal, right? So we have a five and five teaching load. And so when you're asking faculty who are very committed to student success, can you do one more thing? And they're, they're with you in spirit and they're with you uh, intellectually, but uh, it's, you know, it's difficult to, um, to ask people to do more when you know that they're already teaching and doing a great job teaching, but their loads are, are super heavy. Mm -hmm. So did you feel like that, that has, that load has grown after COVID? I I don't, well, I mean, I mean, you know, concretely, no, uh, it's the same load, but in reality, um, 
you know, yeah. So on paper, their load is the same <laughs> as it was before, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's very hard to put your finger on, but it's, we're, we're living in a new world. Um, the expectations for having courses that are extremely flexible, for instance, now because of our experience with the pandemic. And we also know from research that we've done on campus about why students don't succeed in a class. It's very often that they have very complicated lives, mm. particularly community college students, um, economically marginalized, very busy lives. So what can we take from the pandemic where we, we had to pivot immediately and be you know 100% flexible for students, but now we're back in the classroom, but the lives of students are very complex and you don't want to lose that one student in your class just because you can't be um, flexible with them in mm -hmm. terms of deadlines or you, you recorded your, your lecture. So now you can offer it to them uh, online. So they didn't, they didn't really miss it. Um, that's a great thing to do, obviously, but it's just adding to the workload of faculty and they're doing it because they they know the calling to help students is is great and they're they're rising to that occasion but i have to say it's it's, it's exhausting we hear a lot from from faculty that that's you know a lot to ask for faculty and and, I, I, and what right and and for those who are not um teaching or may not have been teaching for a while um you don't just work a 9 to 5 as a no. teacher you you are paid by the course, or you know that's the number of credits that you are teaching. You know maybe per semester or something along those lines, and that's your course load. But you do what it takes to get it done. So if it means working in the weekends, it means it's working. You know, meet having office hours at odd hours because your students need it to be. Um, that's what happens. I remember one professor that I talked to who said, "Yeah, I have my office hours from 11." p.m. to 1 a.m. because yeah. all my students that's when they get off work yep working at a bar they're doing you know whatever that's the only time they could possibly talk to me that's when the children's have gone to sleep and they've 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 done you know cleaning and and doing laundry that's the only time they are able to meet with me <laughs> yeah. right and when when i teach it's so helpful because Sometimes, you know, you get in administrator mode and you're like, yeah, let's do this and let's do that. And then, you know, my, my friends and faculty will say, Dave, this is how it is. And I like, yeah, I know you're, you're reminding me because I'm experiencing that same thing in my own one class that I teach and you're teaching five classes. Right, um, right. Yeah. So it, it brings me back down to earth. Yeah. Yeah. And now... I do think that, I mean, there's so much that you mentioned that I want to go in and talk more about. You know, you talked a little bit about sort of the, the lives of the community college students. And it also feels like to me that there is a lot in it that are opportunities. And in fact, um, at a uh, different episode of the Education Scholars Conversations, I had just talked to um, one of um, Salt Lake Community College's students. Um, his name is Martin Gaussin, and mm -hmm. and um, he's a brilliant, brilliant student. Um, and uh, and uh, we talked a little bit about the 
the sort of natural amount of diverse backgrounds, everyone coming together in the community college, almost by definition, they're just so diverse uh, from all different, you know, ethnic background, language background, cultural background, you know, et cetera. And, and when he goes in and, you know, has to do a project, um, seeing all these different sort of culture melding in one place and being able to apply that and seeing, well, what if in these different people's lenses, how would this go? And I think he was studying like political, he's studying political science and mm-hmm. international relations or something. And, and, but he's able to apply that and being able to just see right away. If we, if one were to talk about a policy, how would it impact these people right here in my classroom? Right. And I had another professor whom I talked to who said, oh, you know, and this is um, uh, John Jay Community, uh, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, who said, "I when I teach this, you know, like um, I think it's like laws in society or something, you know." Um, and and he said, "When I teach this to a non-urban, you know, sort of uh, uh, environment setting, it all feels very theoretical. Yeah. This is how society should be structured and." These laws make sense and this and that. But in his class in the middle of Manhattan, when there are students from all five boroughs coming in, you know, from all different backgrounds, he would say, you know, this is what this law is. And someone said, oh, yeah, my cousin, you know, got that last week. You know, he was arrested. (laughs) You know, we have to (laughs) figure out what to do. And so suddenly it becomes real, you know, it becomes like it's not just someone else's problem. You know, and I think yeah. that New College has that amazing opportunity in some ways that are sort of um, people don't realize and don't understand um, that that actually gives you a, a, a sort of this very realistic, you know, sort of way to apply that knowledge into something practical. Yeah. You know, I just love our students. Um Salt Lake County is not as diverse as New York City, but it's uh, surprisingly diverse. I think a lot of people don't realize how diverse Salt Lake uh, County is. Um, 60% of our students are first-generation students. We have a lot of students who are uh, parents, uh, who are working, um, and who are struggling financially. And uh, you're right. When I when I talk, and I teach political science, uh, when I talk about politics and uh, the Fourth Amendment and voting and civic uh, engagement, um, the best resource in the class is not what I'm saying, I feel like. It's what students bring to the class because a student Mm -hmm. will pipe up and say, hey, I'm working on organizing my coworkers at Starbucks or I am working for this campaign or, yeah, my cousin got uh, stopped the other day, so I have questions about the Fourth Amendment. Um, so that's just the richness and and it's completely unpredictable, right? You, you don't know when you go into your first class, what the mix of students is going to be and what that synergy and that, that energy is going to be, but it's always positive. You know, I always end a semester saying, I'm so glad I got to meet these students. And especially when you think about like the, the reflective pedagogy that we try to, to employ here in our general education program, I really get to see 
as I said before, their minds working as they grapple with uh, what I asked them to, to do in class. So yeah, the students are just a tremendous resource for us. Yeah, I, and for each other, right? Yeah. And that's, uh, I really think that, you know, taking the same exact concept or subject or academic, you know, subject or theory, you know, in a community college, um, just more often than not, you can just go, yeah, I can see, like, I can see it so much more clearly because like you said, someone in class can just say, oh yeah, that happened to me, right? Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. actually I have a counterpoint to that. It doesn't work. What you said, it doesn't work. Exactly. Because in my case, guess what? I did that and it backfired. Right? <laughs> how do you, how do you like, I mean, then you really start to think much more deep and it becomes more personal, it becomes more like, oh, well, hold on a minute. The human lives in st at stake here. It's not just, you know, what was on the books, you know? Yeah. And, and it's interesting when we teach a class, we really try to package a, an experience for students. Um, and our understanding of the subject is not necessarily their understanding of the subject, nor... Mm -hmm nor their experience. And so I think we have to always be open to incorporating their experiences into what we know. And um, it's not just a, it's not a one-way street at all. They yeah. are learning from us, surely, but we are learning from them and they're learning from each other. And it, it really takes away that model of education where so much, you know, where there's almost like an imbalance of, you know, I feel like for, few decades we've been so heavy handed on content acquisition it's yeah. like there's a bunch of content learn it and that's what <laughs> the exams are going to be on all this content and so i i i had the the good fortune of being a, a an exchange student so i went to the university of bonn in what was then west germany mm -hmm. and i remember going into my first what they called Vorlesung. So it was a lecture and all the students sat at their wooden tables and professor came in with the, his notes in a, in a binder in front of him and he put them out on his podium and everybody was quiet. And he, he lectured for an hour, no questions from, from the students whatsoever. When he was done, he closed his binder and all the students knocked on their on their desks, which was their way of applauding. And he walked out, and that was the entire course. And every every session was exactly like that. And I thought this is completely insane. So I'm so glad. I mean, that's not the entire model, obviously, of how education happens in Germany. But um, in terms of lecture halls, that that was it. And I'm so glad that we haven't embraced that. We really try to get beyond that and and engage with students and have students do things hands-on in classes and engage with each other and with this with the uh with the faculty member but uh yeah that that one experience really shaped me it's like i don't want to ever uh be that kind of teacher <laughs> he was a great well, he was a great guy but uh, not yeah. not my style of learning yeah i mean i i sometimes find that and I remember someone, I had a very similar conversation with someone. And I, by the way, was shaped in this very simple, in a similar way. I used, when I was a kid, I lived in Hong Kong and it was uh -huh. like wrote to the max. Yeah. You know, actually don't even lecture. They just, they, you know, what our teachers would do is we will go into the class 
all having the textbook open, they'll go turn to page 40, right? Yeah. So we're on page 40, and then they'll go, they'll pick on one student, Jeff, read, <laughs> read. Oh, and yeah. Jeff will read aloud the book, and it goes through the end of the chapter, and that's the end of the class. Yeah. That, that's the class. So no questions, nothing. And oh, and then the book, the textbook has the, the questions and exercise at the end. That's the homework. <laughs> and the homework, by the way, these questions weren't, at the time especially, they weren't like critical questions. They were literally questions that, uh, that you are supposed to basically lift a paragraph from the, the three pages that you read. Yeah. And you, you just need to plop that into the answer. Mm-hmm. You just copy it. That's it. <laughs> it was crazy. Times have changed, haven't they? Yeah. It has. But I remember, though, like I'm, I'm shaped that way. And I remember talking to someone who had said, I don't know. I mean, have you been in a lecture that is lecture style that is so good that you come out jazzed and excited and feeling amazing? And I have. I have been to some like that. I remember going to a lecture by um, a, a famous educator, Maxine Green. I don't know if you know her. She, she had since passed. And, and she um, um, was, a, was just an amazing educator. And, um, you know, the, every, every single lecture she's ever given was created new. Um, and that very lecture that she gave, she wrote that day. Mm. Uh, and she had give, kept... 50 years or 80 years of note. I mean, she was old by the time, you know, she, I was able, it might've been one of her last lectures, you know, that I was able to attend. And we knew that it was new because she talked about that day's news. Um, You know, it's like, you couldn't fake it basically. She's so amazing. And and the production, I mean, the the way she speaks was so amazing, so captivating. And I, I remember thinking that, and then someone said, look, you know, if you are able to lecture like that, or if you're able to lecture much like if you imagine the type of budget and the writing and the acting and the and the stuff that goes into if you were able to get Morgan Freeman to 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 do this or to get Obama, to, you know, like you see Obama had that what is it called National Parks series and in, yeah. in um in the on Netflix. I loved it, you know, just listening to him talk and and the quality the production quality was absolutely just top notch. Yeah, I could I could see myself learning about something like that. Not all kinds of things, but certain things like that in a in a very entertained, you know, sort of highly engaged kind of way. But until you get to that kind of level, and I don't feel like that, you know, a, a typical professor has those lo- that level of, you know, just production value. You know, it's like yeah. I mean, we're talking like major. You know, if you are able to train yourself to be almost like a Broadway actor. Maybe, you know, yeah. uh, but really aside from that, you know, like it's, it's hard to compete in my mind. Well, I think you've got to play to your strengths. I mean, some people are very effective lecturers and I love to, to listen to them, um, but many are not. And they, they, they might think they are, but they're actually not. But they would be better placed doing some other kind of pedagogy in their class that suits their, their personality. Yeah. I agree. And I do think that even those that are really good lecturers, oftentimes, you know, the lectures, um, I, I question whether that's still their best way of doing it. Yeah. Another 
actually sort of amazing experience that I had was with uh, Sir Ken Robinson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the famous TED Talk, um, you know, the, the one that had done the most amount of TED Talk views. And I saw him in person, not at TED, but in, in person. He was he was not only an amazing you know, educator and um, and a speaker, he was hilarious like any comedian. I mean, it was oh, like nice. he, could have, he could have sold tickets. Oh, my God. <laughs> but here's the thing. Um, he was so he basically i was at this place where he was giving a lecture which is amazing and he sort of gave like a one hour of maybe 45 minute long talk brilliant and then he stayed on for another hour and a half where he just sort of talked to people and just took questions and just riff and man that was even better that was amazing that was it was actually you know some of the most amazing authentic thing that you see him thinking and learning and then you know responding really quickly and putting things together and then involving the people who he would talk to and and sort of almost like real life demonstrating how this it was going to happen you know yeah yeah um, and so i think that even for someone who's a great lecturer like he was um you know um it's uh it's uh he might have been even better at that in the interactive piece um and well rest in peace i think he passed away um yeah a couple of years ago um any case um i was going to um let's let's switch if you don't mind switch uh, switch gear a little bit because you, you talk, we talked about a lot of things. One of the things that we had talked, you had talked about, are just issues in community colleges today. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this workload issue, and and there's also this invisible kind of workload, which is, hey, look, you know, it's the same amount of work, except that we just made it work harder and more demanding, and yeah, but it's the same amount of work, you know. So it's kind of like, well, <laughs> it. Is not when it make it harder when it may take it longer to do and more Indeed. I have to produce more. But aside from that, I'd imagine that you might you must see all kinds of other both issues but also opportunities. You know, in community college today, you know, seeing what the new generation of students are coming in now, what what they do and what they're like. I mean, look at student like Martin that I was talking about earlier. You know, he. He's not there just to be an A student. He's he, it feels like that he is there to he's not just taking political science because everyone else is. He's there to make a dent. You know, I would not at all be surprised a few years later he would be running for office or <laughs> or or something like that, right? Because it's just like students today it feels like that they are they are the charge with some, something something different. Um Maybe that it, it's got a little, remind me a little bit of you, you know, <laughs> like maybe that organic grass fed, you know, like free yeah. range. Um, well, I, I hear, you. you hear a lot about sort of this generation of young people and you hear a lot of negative things about this generation of young people mm-hmm. in terms of, of their, they're spoiled, they're not very ambitious, they're not very engaged. And, you know, I hear that. Um but I really don't believe it. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's impossible for me to believe. And when you engage with students every semester, I'm just blown away 
by what students are doing and how how they're juggling their lives with uh, civic engagement and their jobs and their their work outside of school and the excellent work that they do in school. I'm just I'm just not getting the you know that that message that societal message that younger people today have sort of checked out. I just don't see it. They're they're engaged in voting rights. They're engaged in civil rights. They're protesting abuses of authority. They're fighting for climate uh, change policies. Um, I, I'm just seeing it everywhere that that they are engaged and and uh, and nobody more so than community college students. Um, so. You know, I, I hope we can dispense with that, what I think is a myth, because today's young people are just very inspiring to me. I think uh, the failings, if there are failings, are institutionally. I mean, I look at, at my institution, we're the most, we have the most diverse student body, and we have the least amount of state funding per student. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's wrong, frankly. Mm-hmm. And uh, our students deserve more, and we could do so much more uh, if we had the state funding that some other institutions receive, um, because the you know faculty here and the academic administrators here are just working their tails off to make great experiences for students. This concludes part two of our conversation. To hear part three, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for tuning in.